today we have been, I think, richly nourished by remembering Christ's past work at this table. The Lord's Supper, I think, helps us tangibly understand the present promises of the gospel. The promise that tells us that we are saved and sanctified, set apart unto God on the basis of Christ's sacrificial work alone, by God's grace alone. But there's more to it than the past and the present situation. The Lord has also provided something for us in the supper that is something that should encourage our hearts for the future. The Lord's Supper holds a promise out to us of future grace. A future promise that's yet to be fulfilled. A promise that should produce joyful anticipation in our hearts this morning. According to the passage that Nate just read in 1 Corinthians eleven, twenty-six, Turn with me there this morning again and look at this glorious text. Oftentimes we skip over this, we go through this, and we don't necessarily focus on this, but this is very, very important to God's promise of future grace. In verse 26, the Apostle Paul writes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. This, this ordinance reminds us that Christ is alive. Jesus is alive. And it reminds us that He is coming again. When we come to the table, we're freshly reminded of this. That's the intent here. The one who was slain is alive. And He is coming. He is coming again. This passage should give us great hope. Because in this passage, in verse 26... God promises believers that we will see King Jesus face to face in the future. Is that not amazing? That one day we will feast with Him in a personal way, at a new table, in His literal presence, His physical presence. We see that promise realized in Revelation 19. Turn there with me. Revelation 19, verse 6. Here's the promise realized, the promise of future grace for those who partake of the Lord's Supper in faith. Verse 6 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord, our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For or because the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Saints, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, 
This is the invitation to one that's coming. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Where we will see the one who has clothed us with his righteousness. Who has made this filthy bride clean by his works, his accomplishments. And on that day we're going to be singing hallelujah with the angels. They they hold second place to our song at this point. This is the song of the redeemed as we gather around this throne and worship the one who has given us salvation. And then we sup with him. We fellowship with him at this wedding feast in the future. And that's what the Lord's Supper should point us to as we celebrate his accomplishments presently on this earth. Today, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we we anticipate the great day to come, don't we? Today we experience Jesus' presence in the fellowship, in the communion, and we experience his promises in this fellowship, in this communion, but it's spiritually experienced, not physically experienced. But when he comes again, church, get this. We're going to see him. We're going to look upon the one who died for our sins. We're going to see him physically. And here's the good news. We're going to see him with new eyes, regenerated eyes. Eyes that were recreated for this purpose. So that we could behold the glory of Jesus and not be consumed. We have... Eyes promised to us in the future that can feast on the glory of Christ forever without turning away. Moses couldn't look upon the full glory of God, but we will. By God's grace, through Christ's sacrifice. That's what this ordinance reminds us of as we continue to declare the Lord's death until he comes. We need to always keep in mind he's coming. We're going to see him. We're going to be with him. And I think that's why Christ commands us here in this passage in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, to continue proclaiming the gospel through the illustration of communion often. We are to continue celebrating what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Here's what we, here's what we continue to celebrate. We continue to celebrate Jesus' incarnation. God the Son taking on flesh in our place. His incarnation is celebrated at the Lord's table. We continue to celebrate His sacrificial substitution when we come to the table and we partake of the the cup. We see the cup representing His blood of the new covenant that has been given for us. And we continue to, to celebrate not only His incarnation and His substitution at the cross, but we also celebrate the fact that He has gloriously rose again from the grave. We celebrate his glorious resurrection here. He is coming again. Hence, he is alive forevermore. And we are to do all of this, the Apostle Paul tells us, in anticipation of that day when he comes. We should be anticipating not only his incarnation, his substitution, his resurrection, we should also be celebrating and anticipating his victorious second coming. The king is coming, saints. The one that the world has rejected and rebelled against. He's coming. He's not coming in judgment against your sins, though. He's coming to receive you unto himself. And this should cultivate great humility and joy in our hearts.
in great anticipation to walk worthy of the one who's coming. On the glorious day when, when Christ comes, as Nate pointed out, when Christ comes again, we will not need a memorial service any longer. We won't need this memorial service to remind us of his past work. No, we won't need it because we'll see it. Because on that day, church, understand this, we will see him face to face. We will see him face to face. It's on that day, church, that what we do here this morning by faith, we will be able to celebrate in sight. We, we by faith, believe that this is what Christ has done for us. We look at the elements and we recognize it's by faith that we see Christ shed his blood for us. But one day our faith will become sight. Isn't that amazing? What a glorious day that will be. That is the day we long for as Christians. That's the day we pant for as Christians. All things will be made right. Christ will reign on the earth. Reign over those who rebel. And he will reign with those he has redeemed. On that day we'll see incarnate deity. Incarnate deity. We'll see God's incarnate love and grace crowned in glory, in full glory, in sovereign glory when that day comes. We will see, church, understand this, we will see the one who bears our scars on his hands and his feet forever. We'll see the one, the only one, who has the mark of our sins placed on him in our place so that we would have full and perfect reconciliation with God and be unmaimed by our own sins. You realize this? The only one scarred in heaven is Jesus because of his great love for us. We'll have resurrected bodies without blemish, without stain, without the effects of sin. But Jesus will be forever marked as the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. Saints, that is amazing to think about. That is something to rejoice about. The Bible promises us this great hope throughout the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament as well, but in the New Testament it's brought out in full glory. The Bible promises that promises us that Jesus will come again physically. He'll come, notice this, he'll come to celebrate his victory over our sin and he'll do so, he'll do so with us personally and very powerfully when he comes. Therefore, we, we should partake of this cup and this bread in anticipation of that great day. That great day when we will see Jesus not as a babe in a manger, not on a crucifix, but we'll see him in his unveiled glory. Shouldn't should that cultivate some kind of thrill in your heart this morning? It should. Does it cause you to rejoice? Does it cause you to ponder? Does it cause you to wonder what you'll see when he comes on that day? I think about that a lot. Nate and I have these deep conversations sometimes about things like this. What will it look like? What will it be like? What will we do in the immediate context of when this happens? And how will this affect everything in this universe? Think about this. What will we see when he comes again? What will it be like on that great day when Christ comes in full glory? We get a little glimpse of what that might look like 
If you turn with me to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, gives us a, a glimpse of what we will see on that great day. Let me begin in verse 1. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel, or to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then verse 9 is the one I want to zoom in on. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. The cloud referred to here is the cloud that's referred to in the Old Testament when Israel was in the wilderness being led by this, by this cloud. It's the same word that's being spoken of when God shows up in the temple. This is the Shekinah glory, the Shekinah glory of God here he's talking about. It's a glory cloud. While they were gazing into heaven... As he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, two angels, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come, notice this, in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, he will come in full glory, in the Shekinah glory of God, so that all eyes will see. Christ is coming, Luke tells us here, the same way he left in glory to reveal his victory. He ascended in victory. He comes in victory. Christ's beauty and his power will be displayed on that day when he comes. It will no longer be veiled in humility. He will come in full glory. He'll come in authority and he'll come in majesty, saints. Since when Christ comes again, we will rejoice. But this world will tremble at his presence. When Christ comes again, this, this sinful, evil world will tremble at the sight of our Savior and our sovereign King. The one we serve now. The one we know now. When he comes... Though the knees aren't bowing now, they will bow on that day. Those knees that were saved by his love will bow willfully. Those knees that were rebels against his authority, they will be bowed low by his rod of wrath. He is coming as our Savior and as their judge. But he's coming in full glory. And all the world will see this. Look with me at Second Peter. Second Peter 3.10. Peter writes about the day of the Lord. 
the coming of the Lord Jesus. He writes here in very, I think, clear and concise ways that, that reveal to us that when Christ comes, it will be personal and it will be powerful. It will not be veiled in humility. It will be exposing his full glory, his authority, his majesty when he comes. Look what it says in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Let me add this. It will be exposed by the sword that proceeds from the mouth of Christ who judges in righteousness. Peter asked the question in verse 11. Since... All these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Peter asks, what kind of people should you be in anticipation of that great day? Should, should not the coming of Christ transform us presently? That's what he's asking. If you know he's coming in full glory, if you know he's coming with authority, if you know he's the one who saved you from your sins, how should you live now, presently? How does this affect you? How does coming to the Lord's table transform you weekly, monthly, daily? Are you waiting for and hastening the coming of this day? The day that he returns to display his glory? Peter's telling us here that when he comes, he's going to make his glory visible to all. All will see him. For, for the believer, this is comforting. This is joy-giving truth. Okay? Not so for the world. Not so for the unbelievers. When our great and glorious Savior, King Jesus, comes again, he's coming to reveal his lordship. He's coming to reveal his authority over this world and display his power visibly so that every eye would see. For the believer, that day of vindication of Christ's glory will be joyful. The enemies will be put under his feet. We will rejoice with him as heirs of the kingdom that he has purchased with his own blood for us. God wants us to be continually thinking about this. This is what really cultivates a, a form of sanctification that's joy-driven rather than legalistic. As we think about the one who has purchased us and who is coming again to receive us unto himself, we want to walk differently in this present life. We want to live for His glory. We want to honor Him so that on that day when He comes, we can rejoice at the presence of the One who gave us the perfect linen that covers us and produces righteous deeds that Revelation 19 spoke of. That is the fruit of Christ's righteousness that we wear. The righteous deeds of the saints is the actual springing forth of the reality that we are in Christ's righteousness and it's working through us. And our Lord wants us to know that when He comes, all the world will see this. They will testify to the reality that God can redeem sinners like us when we, when we are received by this great and sovereign King. 
holy and righteous, receiving sinners unto himself. The world will know that he is full of grace and mercy, and they will bow before him and cry out, God, we are unworthy, we are wretches, we deserve your eternal wrath. They will know on that day, saints. They will know. They will hate him, they will despise him, but they will know that they deserve all that they receive under his authority on that day. And we will know that we don't deserve anything we receive on that day. And we will testify to that throughout eternity, singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and praise and glory now and forever. We will be amazed forever when our King comes and reveals His glory. In Matthew 24, Jesus' disciples were wondering about this great day. Go with me there. In Matthew 24, the disciples of Christ wondered about when Christ would come and set everything right. When is it all going to be really consummated? When is this all going to, to testify to your greatness, this great work you've accomplished, this great gift you've given us? When will the world see your authority? When will they see your glory? They ask Jesus this question. And so they, they even push a little harder. They say, Jesus, we want to know, know what the sign will be of your return. They ask for a sign. We want to know, Jesus, the, the sign of your return. And, and we want to see this sign so we can be prepared for this great day. And Jesus answers them. And he says to them, this sign will be unmistakable. You won't miss it. You will not miss my second coming. According to Matthew 24, verse 3, then we'll jump down to verse 21. You'll see this. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign, the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Now, in the Greek text, this is a, a definite article here. It is like saying the only sign. What will be the pinnacle sign of your coming and the close of the age? So Jesus speaks to them a few moments about some things. And then he actually answers the question down further as we get toward the end of this passage in verse 31. But beginning in verse 21, he says this to answer them. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. And here's what he's saying. Let me just stop here for a second. He's saying, look, a lot of people are going to come up with a lot of ideas, a lot of Theories. They're going to throw these things out at you to confuse you, to distract you, to distort this proper understanding of what I am going to do. And he's saying, look, I'm going to give you the sign. It will be undeniable. All eyes will see. 
Verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Verse 27 sets the stage for his coming. For the sake of the elect, for the sake of the elect, God God will show forth his glory in a very specific way, in a very powerful way when Christ comes. Verse 29 says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. God literally darkens the universe to display the glory of Jesus for the sake of his elect. Does that not astound you? Verse 30 says, Then will appear in heaven, notice, the sign, the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Acts 1 tells us this. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. The sign will be undeniable the sign will come in the midst of complete darkness. Darkness like this planet has never seen, never experienced. The closest we have to this is on the day of Christ's sacrifice on the cross when God blots out the sun. But this will be global, universal. The entire universe is at the power and the control of God Himself and He blots everything out to display Jesus. That's the Jesus we serve. That's the Jesus we know. That's the Jesus who died for our sins so that we could give him glory now and forever. Saints, he's coming like this. So what kind of people should we be in anticipation of that day? That was Peter's question. That's my question. What kind of person should I be in anticipation of that day? In holiness and righteousness and good deeds. Should not my life be transformed? It should be. It is being transformed by this reality. God is at work in us, conforming us unto the image of Christ progressively until that day comes and he culminates everything in Christ's return. Glory, regeneration meets with this new body. We have this ability in the future to be with him physically, celebrating his greatness and his grace in a physical way. And I look forward to that day. I long for that day. I long for the day that sin is eradicated from my flesh. Not just the, the idea of escaping the suffering world, this, this sorrowful world. That's not even on my mind. One day that will be eradicated. And the glory of Jesus will be seen again on the earth. And I'll be with him. You'll be with him by God's grace. When, when he comes again, saints... I think Matthew is clear on this. His glory will be visible. It will be undeniable. Again, he will not come as a humble servant the second time. He will not come as a babe in a manger when he comes again. He's going to come on 
that day with glory and authority. And all men will see the King of kings and the Lord of lords for who he truly is. No more mocking of Jesus on that day. It will cease forevermore. Those who mock his name now, mock him by the way they live in rebellion against him, that will cease on that day, saints. And our Jesus will be vindicated. People will see his greatness and his glory. And it will be undeniable. He'll not be dressed as a servant when he comes again. He'll be dressed in his royal garments. He'll be dressed in divine glory. He will reveal sovereign authority when he comes on that day. That's what Revelation 19 goes on to tell us. Look there with me again. Revelation 19 verse 11. Notice, this is the same Jesus that the saints in heaven are singing about. Hallelujah! The Almighty reigns, the rejoicing over His reign, the rejoicing over His authority. But here, for the unbelieving world, you don't hear the same praises. But you do see He comes to them as well, personally, but yet in authority. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is not the fair-haired Jesus in the pictures you see. This is not the the weak-wristed Jesus that many want to portray. This is the lamb who is a lion coming to make war on his enemies. The one who was slain by sinners coming to sovereignly reign over them in authority and glory. He's frightening here, saints, for the unbeliever. This is terror for the unbeliever, the one who has rejected God's grace. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He penetrates. He pierces into the heart. He burns out what is inside of man. He exposes it with his eyes. He sees through man and sees the core of his being. On his head are many diadems. That's crowns. In other words, it's portraying the fact that he reigns over all creation. All leaders are under his authority. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Now, I'll make reference to this robe dipped in blood later. I do not believe that this is the blood of Christ is covering his robe. I do believe this is the blood of his enemies who have rebelled against him historically, presently, and in the future. He is coming in God's judgment against his enemies. Verse 14 says, And the armies, notice the military language here. He's coming to wage war. He has army with him. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. Now, who did we hear about being arrayed in fine linen earlier? The saints. The saints are with him, white and pure, who are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. This is the righteous judgment of Jesus' words coming against this world here. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And then notice, on his robe and on his thigh he has a name. A name written, King of Kings 
and Lord of Lords. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. On that day, church, again, let me repeat. No one will mock Jesus. No one. No one will have the ability. They'll be in such terror and horror over their rebellion, over their sinful condition. They will fall before this king and revere him. For he is righteous in his judgments. They will revere him for his righteousness. They will revere him for his judgments are true. He is the one who knows what is in the heart of man. And no one will be able to deny that on that day. And in contrast to that, I'm amazed that we don't see him with a rod of iron when he comes to us. On that day, if you are a follower of Christ, you will joyfully bow before this king. You will bow before him face to face and celebrate with confidence that you can be there. Isn't that amazing? Not confidence as in boasting in yourself, but confidence that's built in his accomplishments. You will come before him knowing that he was your sympathetic high priest who died and took your place. He rescued you personally and powerfully. And you can come before now the throne of grace, Hebrews 4 tells us, with confidence. The throne of God is never spoken of as a throne of grace except in Hebrews 4. You realize that? The throne of God is a place of judgment. It's a place that God exercises his divine prerogative over man and says they are sinners, therefore they are cast away. But here, for the believer, we can come with confidence to God to a throne of grace and find help in the time of our need in Christ. So when he comes on that day, we will come. We will come fearful in the sense of revering him will come in confidence that he has called us to himself. He has made us clean by his own works, not ours. We'll be able to approach our king without fear of his judgment because Romans 5 tells us that we have been washed in his blood. We have been reconciled to God. We have been granted peace with God through Jesus Christ. Look with me, Romans 5, 6. Now, I hope, I hope, my heart is this, that, that you hear these passages, hear these truths, and cultivate some sort of thought process in your, in your heart, in your mind, that will help you think about coming to the Lord's table in a different and a fresh way each month as we celebrate His death until He comes. Romans 5, 6 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That would be everyone in this room who has believed upon the Lord Jesus. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so he says, look, if that's the case, how does that affect us? When you, when you contemplate the Lord's table, how does that affect you? How does it transform you? Verse 9 says, since you know this, therefore, right? Since therefore, we have now been justified. That is, declared right in a holy and righteous God's eyes. Declared right by 
Jesus' blood. Since this is the case, he says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The fact that, that I've been declared righteous in Christ is sufficient. I'm happy with that. But God's not happy with that revelation. He wants us to know there's much more. Much more. You're, you're not just forgiven. You've been granted this perfect standing. You have been rescued. And, and all judgment against you has been removed. It fell upon Jesus in your place. There's nothing left. Randy, there's nothing left to pour out on you. I poured it out on Jesus. You're completely forgiven. Come on in, son. That's much more. That is much more than I can contemplate. But I can rejoice in this as I try to contemplate it. Verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, there it is again, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Now he says this, more than that. He just keeps stacking it up, right? More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We're able to approach our king because of this. We're able to come before him knowing that we've been saved from his wrath in Christ. We can come before him knowing that Christ's works are eternally accepted in our place. And we have now perfect peace with God Almighty, the Holy One. We have much more in Christ than we could ever imagine. We have reconciliation with God. Enmity has been removed, completely removed. You are now accepted as sons and daughters, loved by the Father because of Jesus' sacrifice. This, this truth, I think, reminds us why we have confidence to come to the Lord's table. It's not built on our goodness. Even our self-examination doesn't give us confidence to come here. When we examine ourselves, we know that we fall short of God's glory. And so we immediately look to Jesus, who is our confidence. We know because of Jesus, we'll never face God's judgment. Because of Jesus' death, we will actually face God in a, in a new way. We'll face our holy and righteous judge as our Father. The one who loves us and sends his Son to die for us. We know that on the day when Christ comes, that will be declared universally. We'll stand before this God who is now our Father, knowing that we are now acceptable in His sight because of Jesus. We are covered in this blood-soaked, righteous robe of Jesus and forever accepted through His sacrifice. Isn't that comforting? It's not my performance that makes me acceptable to God. It's not my continual hard labor and sanctification that makes me closer to God. Both are a result of God coming close to us in Christ, who became our substitute in life, in death, and in the resurrection, and who promises to come again to bring this all to culmination, to bring Him glory and praise, to reunite the Father with his children. Our Father, on the day when Christ comes, will embrace all his prodigals. 
He'll embrace us because we were brought home by Jesus. Jesus says they're mine. And he brings us into the Father's presence. He intercedes for us presently. He promises security. His Spirit seals us for eternity. And on that day, all this will be revealed for God's glory. But again, not only will that be revealed through His redeeming work, it will be revealed through His judgments. We'll rejoice in His infinite mercy and His unmerited favor. But again, the, the world that is filled with evil and rebellion will tremble on this glorious day that we look forward to. And they should tremble. They should tremble because the King is coming, as I said, to judge their sins in righteousness, to judge their works in the flesh with a perfect judgment. And apart from God's grace, King Jesus is a fearsome and a just judge. We see that illustrated further in Revelation 19. Look with me there again in verse 17. I want to give you a full picture of the one who is coming so that we give him all the glory he deserves presently. He's not just our Redeemer. He is the judge of the world. Verse 17 says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. Now this is not the wedding feast. This is the display of God's judgment. Come, he says, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, all, all, both free and slave, both small and great, coming to consume them. That's what it means. Come and gather to see the display of God's judgment over this world. That's what the angel cry. Verse 19 says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So he's revealing what the heart of man is like even at this moment. There is still this rebellious heart within men that will fight to the very end, but they cannot, they cannot overcome his authority. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest, the rest of creation, the rest of rebellious man, were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Again, The sword from the mouth of Christ here is his word that judges men. Here we see in this passage, in one more passage, in Isaiah 63, we see the wrath of the Lamb. We don't often hear about this when we talk about Jesus. But I want to give him full praise and glory for who he is and how he will reveal himself in the future. We see the holy wrath of the Lamb in Revelation 19, but it's really the same picture here that we see in Isaiah 63. It's a portrayal of of Christ coming in authority to judge His enemies. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Bozrah? 
He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. The lamb overcame on his own is what he's saying here. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So... My own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This is a very sobering passage in connection with Revelation 19. It's sobering. It's also exciting to know that the king will be vindicated. Nothing will escape his justice. The atrocities done now against man, by man, will be righted on that day. But my question this morning to you is this. How do you feel about this day? How do you feel about that day? Do you see the sinfulness of sin that deserves this kind of anger, this kind of wrath? Do you see that in your own heart when you sin? Do you realize that Christ received this wrath himself in your place? Do you hate that sin? Do you turn from that sin quickly, consistently? Do you long for this day to see his glory vindicated? Do you long for this day with eager anticipation? Or does this cultivate fear? And trembling because you're going to be exposed. Maybe you're here and you're pretending. Maybe you're here and you're putting on a good front. And you truly have not been made right with God through trusting Christ. And you're intimidated. You're you're frightened by this day. I want to call you this day to repent and believe in Jesus. I command you in Christ's name to do so for his glory, and for your good. Today is the day of salvation. And if you know that he is coming in this kind of way, you will either rejoice because you are washed through his works and his righteousness, or you will fear and you will tremble in your heart because you know you're standing in your own self-righteousness and sin. And you need to do business with God this morning. You need to examine your hearts. I know we've already partaken of the communion. I understand that. But I know that people partake of communion every Sunday and they have no idea of what they're really doing. Though it's explained well here, there can still be hypocrisy in our hearts that need to be dealt with. How do you feel about this day? Do do you, you long to be found serving King Jesus on this day? Do you 
Do you hasten this day? Do you, do you long for this and, and, and want this so much so that it's sanctifying your present thoughts and your actions? I mean, don't you want to be caught serving the king when he comes? Or do you want to be caught on the internet? Or in your anger? Or in your selfishness? Though forgiven, do you want to be caught there? Don't you want to be actively rejoicing when he comes? Actively serving him when he comes? Though feebly doing so, I understand that. But this should cultivate this desire to walk in holiness, walk in sanctification for his praise on that day. To testify that that God can take wretched lumps of clay and turn us into trophies of his grace and change us, not just inwardly, but outwardly. Don't you want that to be the testimony on that day? Don't you want to cast down your your crowns at his feet? The crowns that that display that you have served him faithfully, that you have worked in such a way that glorifies his name. Don't you want to give that back to him? Because it's really his work being displayed through you. If you don't feel that way this morning, I, I, I pray that you will truly examine your hearts to see where you stand with God. Ask yourself, do do I tremble at this day? If you fear that day, then today, again, you must repent of your sins. And more importantly, I think, because we don't always identify sins this way, you need to repent of your self-righteousness, thinking that you're good enough in God's presence or that he's satisfied with what you're doing and that makes, makes you closer to him for some reason. You need to repent of this. You need to confess your need of God's grace and mercy that's only found in Jesus Christ. And church, we want everyone to do that. We want this entire world to do that. We want the entire world to know that sinners can stand before God with confidence. We want them to know that we can do that because Christ made a way for sinners like us to be made clean and confident through his works. That way we just celebrate it. That way we we look forward to every month. That way is revealed at this table. Jesus Christ, God the Son, came to be our substitute to make this possible. The bread on this table reminds us of this great truth. It reminded us that Jesus died in our place to secure us. His sacrificial act of coming and taking on flesh provided for us active obedience to God's law, whereby we are now made righteous through His obedience. He made a way for sinners to be counted righteous. And the bread should remind us of that. In the flesh, He accomplished what God required of us to grant us righteousness. The cup on the table reminds us that Jesus, in the flesh, took our place to secure us for eternity. His sacrificial death made a way for God's wrath against our sins to be appeased. Therefore, God would remain holy and just. He will judge all those who sin, and He did so in Christ for those who believe. The wrath that we deserve fell on Jesus and thereby satisfied God's justice. That's what the cup reminds us of when we come to it monthly. And not only that, there's also that promise of His coming again that we can rejoice in this morning. 
that we celebrate at the Lord's table. The promise that Christ is coming again reminds us that He is alive and He is with us and He is coming to reward those who trust in His accomplishments. That's why I think we are called to continually celebrate this communion with Him until He comes. Folks, God, God's promised His children in Christ a glorious future. And it's through Christ's work that this is guaranteed for us. And that's what we celebrate here. God will not fail to accomplish His glorious purposes in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, let us continue to celebrate this communion of God's love and mercy in Christ. Let us celebrate His grace in Christ with confidence until He comes. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this great promise. We thank You for the revelation of Jesus not only as our Redeemer and our Savior, but as our Sovereign. Jesus, I I ask you, through your Word, through your Spirit, to sanctify our minds and hearts and to change the way we respond to this truth this morning. I pray that you would produce the fruit of purity and holiness that displays the power of Jesus through us as we contemplate what we can understand, what we can grasp here of this reality to come. Jesus, you're coming. And we, we cry out from our hearts as we think about this that, that you would come quickly. But Lord, we also know we, we, we know people who, who don't know you and will fall under your authority and your judgment. So God, we pray that you would make us active and sympathetic and faithful witnesses for your namesake, so that not only could their souls be rescued from your wrath, but but more importantly, that Jesus would be praised through their redemption and through your work that comes through your weak instruments that you have set apart for your glory. Lord, we want to be your witnesses. And in Christ, we are your witnesses. But we want that witness to be made manifest now so that on that day when you come, you will be pleased. And that you will perfect the work that you began in us so that all the world would see the greatness of Jesus. You will be glorified through the church on that great day. A church made up of sinners saved by your grace, your unmerited favor. A church made up of those who could never, ever deserve such mercy, such love, such care. You will will take this church and you will reveal reveal the, 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 the reality of your sovereign authority and your mercy so that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess to your glory that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And God, we thank you that he is our King and our Lord. And as such, we we want to submit to your reign now on earth and in the future 
for your glory and for our good, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.